mouth and the meditation of every one of our hearts be acceptable in thy sight. O Lord, our strength and our redeemer. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please open your Bibles again to the book of 1 Peter, the third chapter, the seventh verse. First Peter chapter 3, verse 7. This week, we continue what we began last week, which is our study of the text that we chose for a Mother's Day text. We'll be concluding it this week. This week, again, I'm going to read First Peter chapter 3, verses 1 to 7, but we will be studying verse 7. But we will set it in its context. Let us hear the word of God, which is eternally true. In the same way, you wives, be submissive to your own husbands, so that even if any of them are disobedient to the word, they may be won without a word by the behavior of their wives, as they observe your chaste and respectful behavior. Your adornment must not be merely external, braiding the hair and wearing gold jewelry or putting on dresses, but let it be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is precious in the sight of God. For in this way, in former times, the holy women also, who hoped in God, used to adorn themselves being submissive to their own husbands, just as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, and you would become her children if you do what is right, without being frightened by any fear. You husbands, in the same way, live with your wives in an understanding way, as with someone weaker, since she is a woman, and show her honor as a fellow heir of the grace of life, so that your prayers will not be hindered. This is the word of God. Now, this instruction this morning has application, the verse we're studying, to only one sex, men. And specifically, men who either are presently or will be, or have been, I suppose, husbands. And the instruction begins with this phrase, in the same way. And in this particular construction, the phrase, in the same way, has the meaning of also. It's as if the Apostle Peter, having finished his instructions to the wives, turning now to the husbands, says, All right, you husbands, now I have something for you also. As I have had commands for your wives, in the same way now I have commands for you husbands. One unique set of commands for the female sex and another for the male. Commands for both sexes, but commands that are unique to each sex. Now, if we go in Scripture, we'll see often that this is the theme of Scripture, that men and women are given separate commands. And in Ephesians 5, we read, beginning with verse 21, "...be subject to one another." In the fear of Christ, wives, be subject to your husbands as to the Lord. And then verse 25, husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her. It's important to note that nowhere in the Bible does it tell husbands to submit to their wives. It tells wives to submit to their husbands. Uh, But it does say many, many things to the husbands about how they treat their wives And uh, when we see constructions in the same way or one another, these are not meant to obliterate the distinctions that are made between the two sexes in these texts, but rather they're meant to say that all of us have, whether it's 
servants and masters, whether it's children and parents, whether it's wives and husbands, all of us have a unique set of duties and responsibilities that God has given to us in those unique positions that we hold. And as the Apostle Paul in Ephesians 5 demonstrates the interrelatedness of the sexes and the duties specific to each, and so the Apostle Peter does the same here in 1 Peter 3. In verse 1 that we read, in the same way you wives, be submissive. And then down at verse 7, and you husbands, in the same way, live with your wives in an understanding way as with someone weaker. So you can see the balance between the duties of the one sex and the other. First, wives are commanded to be submissive and respectful and gentle and quiet and obedient towards their husbands. And then it says, like Sarah, who called her husband Abraham, Lord. And it's interesting to note here how many, many centuries after Sarah's been dead, this is what she's remembered for. Now, if you think back on Sarah's life, I'm sure you could come up with other things that you might want to remember her for or might, she might not want to be remembered for. But it's very interesting that the Holy Spirit calls her attention here near the end of the New Testament canon. He calls our attention to the fact that Sarah commended herself all down through church history, down to today, because she was submissive. And I would ask uh, those of you who are wives whether you will re be remembered similarly as a wife who honored her husband and submitted to him and called him Lord, or will you be remembered as a wife who resisted her husband and called him an oaf or a fool? Now, notice how the verse right before our text ends. It says, Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, and you have become her children if you do what is right. And then it says this, without being frightened by any fear. It's the nature of the woman to be more easily frightened than the man. And we must ask ourselves whether this is a truth that we have to deny today in order to fit into the modern world. Let me read to you uh, John Calvin and Martin Luther and Robert Layton, all pastors, shepherds, and Bible students from past centuries. And this is how they just incidentally, writing about this text, commented. John Calvin says this, speaking of the woman, he says, "...the weakness of their sex makes women suspicious and timid and therefore morose." Women are liable to be frightened. They often make much of a little thing and thus disturb themselves in the family. Now, are you feeling superior to John Calvin right now? Are you glad that you're not so ignorant as to say such demeaning things about women? But can you imagine what women say about men when they're alone? All right. Something about their egos? All right. I'm going to read Calvin again. The weakness of their sex makes women suspicious and timid and therefore morose. Women are liable to be frightened. They often make much of a little thing and thus disturb themselves in the family. How about Martin Luther? Martin Luther says this. He says, quote, It is usually the nature of women to be troubled and frightened about everything. Now, right about this point, 
I, as I read these comments, was thinking about my wife and thinking it's just the opposite in our home. I tend to get much more frustrated, and I know it's not a word, than my wife does. But I think it should be a word. And so Robert Leighton says this. He says, Some wives may indeed be of a stronger mind in judgment than their husbands, yet these rules respect the general condition of the sexes and speak of the females as ordinarily weaker. In other words, the, the exception of the rule doesn't disprove the rule. Yes, there are women who are much stronger, much more even-keeled, balanced, tame than their husbands, but generally... What Scripture says is true, and what Scripture exhorts women to is what they need to be exhorted to. And so it says, without being frightened by any fear. And it's a truth that all of us see countless times in front of our eyes, while always allowing for the exception to the rule and not permitting it to keep us from observing the rule itself, that, as Calvin says, women are afraid in case by their subjection to men they are more rudely treated by them. All right? In other words, when Scripture commands a subordinate to submit to the one in authority over them, the immediate question that comes into the mind of the subordinate is, if I go ahead and do what he tells me to do, I'm going to lose my life, I'm going to lose my children, I'm going to lose my health, I'm going to lose all my free time, I'm going to be doing things that are just stupid, I'm going to be doing things that are useless, I'm going to be, you know, I mean... How could I do that? I mean, think of the consequences. And Calvin says, Women are afraid in case by their subjection, by their obedience, by their submission to their husbands, they are more rudely treated by them. That it won't be good for the children, it won't be good for the church, it won't be good for the neighborhood, and it certainly won't be good for me as a wife. Well... What God says, God, not the Apostle Peter, but God, he says, as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, you have become your children if you do what is right, what? Without being frightened by any fear. Now ask yourself the question, why are women told not to be frightened by any fear? And the reason is that when you submit to authority that is over you, you cast yourselves on the mercy, not of that authority, but of God. And there is no authority which will not give an answer today, tomorrow, and in eternity for their use of their authority. And so, but on the other hand, if we refuse to submit to the authority, then we get whatever consequences are coming to us because we have cast ourselves out of God's protection. Do you understand that? In other words, my brother Nathan used to say about the Lord's Day, he used to say the reason people don't observe the Sabbath and give themselves to rest and worship is that they don't really trust that God will be a good steward of that day. And so they feel that they have to be their own steward. All right? And so he, think about it. If on the Lord's Day we say to God, I can't trust you with that seventh day, I have to have that one also there is a sense in which we're not living by faith. We're not trusting God with that day. And the same thing is true of someone who refuses to submit to her husband. She says, well, I can't trust you, the, the, the person that works in the shop and doesn't submit to the foreman. I can't trust you. Well, the problem is then that we are not living by faith and we are not trusting God. In other words, it's God that's at stake with authority, not the person themselves. 
So if any of us are to submit to an authority that is over us, it is appropriate to encourage faith in God, isn't it? Because faith and trust in God the Father allows us to be expendable in the hands of our king, our parents, our elders, and our husbands. So the Apostle Paul here tells wives to submit to their husbands, but immediately encourages them not to give in to their fear that this submission will swallow their personality, destroy their gifts, erase their individuality, and so on. No, rather the Apostle Peter says, do what is right without being frightened by fear. He doesn't say there's no reason to fear. (laughs) There's plenty of reason to be afraid. I mean, it always amazes me as I drive a car to think that dumb people and smart people alike are allowed to drive. And when you stop and consider on two-lane country roads how close you're allowed to drive to a car coming in the opposite direction and that you're a dumb person and you're allowed to drive. It's really pretty amazing when you consider how close cars come to each other and how fast they go and what is at stake, it's really pretty amazing that they give dumb people licenses. And I'm not sure that 15 years of age would qualify as being a dumb person, but it is scary to think that Hannah is able to get her learner's permit in the next couple of weeks, you know. I mean, she's not dumb, but... All right, now think about... Now think about husbands. And think of the authority that God gives to husbands. And it really is scary. Think of the authority that God gives to pastors preaching in His name from a pulpit to elders. Authority is scary. There is a good reason that those who are called to submit to authority are told not to give themselves over to fear, right? I mean, how many of you have thought how superior the President of the United States is to you in the last 10 years or 12? And he is an authority. Well, now, husbands, in the same way, live with your wives in an understanding way and show her honor. Okay, verse 7, these are our two commands. Live with her in an understanding way. Show her honor. First, live in an understanding way. And last week we learned that this phrase could also be translated, live with your wives according to knowledge. In other words, we're to take into account who and what they are, our wives. We're to study them so that we know them well. This is to live with them according to knowledge. And since you got that sermon last week, let me ask you now, um, what specific piece of information that is useful for you living with her in an understanding way, do you know this week that you didn't last week? Okay? In other words, did you obey the sermon? Did you obey God's Word last week? What do you know this week because you thought the Bible commands, no, God commands me to grow in my understanding. I can't live with her in understanding unless I grow in my understanding. So how did you grow in your understanding this week? Gaining knowledge of women in general, and of our own wives in particular, however, we all admit is not easy work. In fact, many men have become completely exasperated trying to do this work and have thrown up their hands in the air in despair, giving up on and being content to live mostly in ignorance of their wives' 
calling their wives a mystery wrapped in an enigma. Now, this week we were helping Joseph and Heidi move up here, and uh, I don't know what it says about my son Joseph's fresh marriage, that his screensaver is a picture that some of you have seen, which is a, ply, a, a plywood box divided into two halves horizontally. The upper half is man, and the bottom half is woman. Have you seen this one? And in the upper half, under man, it has a switch, and the switch is labeled on-off. And in the lower half, it's woman, and there's no on and off switch. There, there are just like 45 dials and, and levers, and, you know, it's just completely complicated. <laughs> I hope he had it as his screensaver before he got married. <laughs> but, I mean, that is the view that many of us as men have of woman. That there's no on-off switch. There's just a host of levers and dials that are just a continuum, that, and some of them don't even stop when you take them the whole way around. They just rotate. You don't even know how many revolutions you need. You know, huh? Huh? Right? And this does do a good job of summing up man's perspective on the possibility of living with his wife according to knowledge or in an understanding way. It does seem often to be an infinitely complex task and therefore hopeless. But then ask yourself the question, is it really hopeless? Are women really that mysterious? Are they really so fickle and so impossible to predict? Well, the answer is no. But insofar as a culture gives itself intentionally to denying the essential aspects of sexuality, it does become impossible to understand woman. Now, think about what I just said, okay? In other words, if you live in lies, nothing makes any sense. This is why drugs and alcohol and and addictions so destroy a home because it causes everybody to live in denial, live in lies, and, and nothing makes sense. And the children grow up having facial tics or emotional tics, which are infinitely worse. All right? And so when we think about the issue of lies, lies corrupt relationships. And for instance, here's a lie. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm an equal opportunity employer, and so I'm going to now speak about my daughter, Michael. Um, I'll get you all in one Sunday, right? Michael just wrote a, uh, a thing for her blog where she talks about being so sick of people coming up to her and asking her what she's going to do when she grows up, what she's going to study, what her major is, what career she's going to have. And so she has this... If you read the blog, I didn't know this, but she has this game that she plays, I assume, with Annie where, you know, she says to Annie, pick one, and Annie will just pick some, some career and answer for Michael when, when Michael's asked this, right? Just pick, you know, I'm going to be a librarian, I'm going to be a piano tuner, I'm going to be, you know, it doesn't matter. She says she's, she never ever says the one thing that is just absolutely certain in her mind, which is she's going to be a mother and a wife, Okay. And why? Well, because you're never supposed to say that. Because it's not a career. It's nothing serious. And she said, you know, I think I'm going to change. I'm going to th I think I'm going to start telling people that that's really what I want to be. Now, there's some interesting aspects that I won't mention here, but you, you can go to the blog and read them. 
But what I noticed was right before I went to bed, I checked to see if she got a response, and she just got this nasty, nasty response from this man, woman, I don't know which. I think it had to have been a woman, but they hid themselves. Um, but, but basically saying, uh, you, know, you know, grow up, you know. Um, today you don't have to be a wife and a mother if you don't want to be. And this is just what our society just normally does to young women. They don't have a life until they have a life that's more than being a wife and a mother. All right? And the justification Christians use is, well, you don't know she's going to get married, so you got, she's got to have a career. So in case she doesn't get married, then she'll have something to do. Right? And I go on and on about that. But now think about this. If a young woman growing up is not supposed to say, I want to be a wife and a mother, okay, how understanding do you think the young men considering marrying her are going to be? If she has to lie about it, they have to lie about it. Now, now, now listen to me. If neither she nor the men that are interested possibly in being her husband are allowed to talk about being a wife and a mother, and all, they all have to act as if she's going to you know, have a career in which children will be a lifestyle option, all right? Even though what she really wants is to be a wife and a mother, all right? And I didn't tell her to write the blog. She did it herself, all right? But I am her dad, and she has a wonderful mother who may have cast a vision before her of what would be happiness, but no, no, no. I'll back out of that. Okay. What is the one thing that every wife and mother needs to have said about her in order for her husband to live with her in an understanding way? <laughs> See, if you have to lie about all this, then you can't think it. Don't think it. All right. Here's the clue about men. The path to a man's heart lies through his stomach. All right? Now, what's the path to a woman's heart? Where does it go through? Yep, somebody said it, but you didn't say it very loudly because you're not supposed to. Through your children. So if a man is absolutely committed to thinking that what really matters to his wife is career and the children are just a lifestyle option that she exercises when she gets to be like 35 or 40 years old, right? And he lives with her, and he's exhorted to live with her in an understanding way, but he thinks of children as a lifestyle option, and her job is who she really is. Is he going to understand her? I use as an illustration the time that Matt Nussbaum, who was a pastor I worked with, came over to her house. We were sitting at our butcher block table in the kitchen talking. Mary Lee was in the kitchen working, and... Uh, we were all talking about some aspect of church life. I don't remember what it was. And Hannah was very young. Um, I want to say she was three. Okay. And she's busy in the next room. And all of a sudden she runs in and she looks up at Matt and she hands him a beautifully colored picture. Just gorgeous, right? And Matt's kind of, you know, he doesn't, barely notices that there's this little thing down at his knees, trying to get his attention, doesn't take the picture, doesn't talk, doesn't really look at her, right? And I am remembering my wife saying to me that it is very important that men uh, treat mother's children well. I don't remember why we've been talking about this. And I'm thinking, here's Matt in my wife's kitchen, not noticing our daughter trying to give him a picture. And so I looked at Matt and I said, hey, Matt, it's probably very important right now 
that you notice that my daughter is trying to give you a picture and that you take it, you know, and I was smiling, I wasn't upset at him, you know. So Matt, being a typical man, was, thanks, and sets it down, doesn't look at it, but he did what he was supposed to do, right? He paid attention to Mary Lee's daughter. Now, is that living with a woman in an understanding way? No, it's not. Because even though he might not have the foggiest clue what that picture is supposed to be representing and why she chose the color she chose, it's an offering from the heart of a little girl who is that woman's daughter. And therefore, if he knows what's smart for him, he will pay attention and he will care. Now, what am I saying? What I'm saying is that in a culture that denigrates the role of being a wife and a mother and that tries to turn that role into self-actualization and tries to minimize children as a lifestyle option rather than as central to the calling of marriage, it's going to be hard for men to understand their wives. It's going to be hard for them to live with them in an understanding way. And the first thing that husbands need to understand about wives who have been given the gift of motherhood is that this is the central joy and sorrow and fear and purpose of their lives. And that their husbands are replaceable, but their children are not. And, you know, you talk to to men who just had their first child, and if they're honest, they will talk about their jealousy that no longer do they have the undivided attention of their wives. Surprise! What's the central reality of that new mother's life? What does she spend every waking minute thinking of and caring for? Now, I'm just using that as an illustration of the intensity of motherhood and of how a culture that denigrates it and that reduces it to a second-class status is going to have a hard time having husbands that live with wives in an understanding way. But now let me back out of the children in the home and let me ask you a few questions about your wife. If God has commanded us to live with her in an understanding way according to knowledge, And if we can trust that God gives us grace to obey what he commands and that to love God is to obey his commands, let me ask you, who is this wife that God has given you? What is there to know about her? What ought you to understand concerning her nature and desires, her strengths and weaknesses, her hopes and dreams? What is her favorite color? Okay, right now, those are your husbands. Think. What is her favorite color? Now turn to her and tell her what you think her favorite color is. Go ahead. Come on. Okay, now those that got it right, raise your hand. Okay. Those that got it wrong, raise your hand. Oh, come on. You're all liars or you didn't do what I told you to do. All right. What is her favorite restaurant? Turn to your wife. Tell her what her favorite restaurant is right now. Come on. All right, now, those that got it wrong, raise your hand. All right, anybody else? Everybody else got it right, right? 
All right. Who is her best friend? Turn to her. Tell her who her best friend is. Come on. Okay, wives, those of you whose husbands got it wrong, raise your hand. What does she fear? If everyone were out of the house and not coming home soon, what would she do? Where would she like to travel? How would she like to travel? Boat? Plane? Train? Car? What does she think of your jokes? What does she think of your bragging? What one thing does she wish she could stop you from doing? We've had some discussion of this in our family recently, and I'm, I'm not going to go there. <laughs> and more seriously, what is her knowledge of Scripture? Do you know what her knowledge of Scripture is? What is the sin that Satan uses most to accuse her and to torment her? And are you her shepherd in that sin? Does she fear the death of her children? Does she fear your death? Does she love God? And so on. Do you know your wife? Do you have knowledge of your wife in such a way that you are able to live with her in an understanding way, literally according to knowledge? Now, I hope that you're more honest in private than you are in public because the truth is if you put people at a couple's retreat in front of everyone and have them take guesses as to favorite color and all that stuff, it's usually no more than two-thirds of the people get it right, and usually it's about 50-50. And that's color. And once you get further removed, if you were to have a couple's game where you were to ask them what they fear, I wonder how many husbands here until this morning have ever even thought about their wife's fear that she might see her children die. Now, if we are commanded by Scripture to live with our wives in an understanding way, then we should immediately ask ourselves, what particular understanding does the Holy Spirit through the Apostle Paul emphasize here as particularly important for husbands as they live with their wives in an understanding way, all right? And it says in verse 7, you husbands in the same way, live with your wives in an understanding way. And then the Holy Spirit gives us a clue. All right, and here's the clue. As with someone weaker since she is a woman. Now, this is a fun one, as I commented last week. Uh, This week, what I did was I googled weaker sex. (laughs) And can you imagine what I came up with? I came up with, I mean, I didn't have the time to check it out, but 
I came up with, I'm sure, thousands and thousands and thousands of pages, all of which had one goal in mind, which is to finally destroy the myth of the weaker sex. Right? Can you imagine any website coming up high on Google's engine? <laughs> you know, where the, the goal of the website was to open up Scripture and show how women are the weaker sex. No, people aren't linking to that website. Google isn't popping it to the top. And so you go home and just type in the word woman into Google. It's a search engine. All right. And then quote, weaker sex, unquote. And look at what our culture has to say about it. Google is a great tool. (laughs) Because immediately you can find out what Christian Americans think about the Apostle Paul. Because, of course, what, two-thirds of Christians in America, of people in America claim to be Christians and therefore to believe that the Bible is the Word of God, but how many of them are in any way in agreement with Paul in what he says, or Peter in what he says, or for that matter, the Holy Spirit in what he says about women? Okay, the Holy Spirit here says, Husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way. And then it gives us a clue. It gives us a hint. As with someone weaker, since she is a woman. This is the teaching of Scripture, and Scripture is God, maker of all things and creator specifically of man's helpmate, woman. And it pleases God to bestow a greater care, a greater honor on those who are weaker. In other words, part of the problem with our culture hating the statement that a woman is the weaker sex is that our culture despises things that are weak. For instance, in Matthew 5, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn. They're poor in spirit. They mourn, for they shall become... Blessed are the gentle, verse 5, for they shall inherit the earth. Skipping down to verse 11. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So how does God respond to weakness? To the poor in spirit, to those who mourn, to the gentle, to those who are insulted and persecuted and have evil things falsely set against them. Their reward is great. 1 Corinthians 1, Consider your calling, brethren, that there were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong. And the base things of the world and the despised, God has chosen the things that and then summing it all up, the things that are not, so that he may nullify the things that are, so that no man may boast before God. 1 Corinthians chapter 12. It is much truer that the members of the body which seem to be weaker, and the Apostle Paul is here speaking of how we're to relate to one another in the church, that the members of the body which seem to be weaker are necessary, and those members of the body which we deem less honorable... On these we bestow more abundant honor, and our less presentable members become much more presentable, whereas our more presentable members have no need of it. And then summing up, God has so composed the body, giving more abundant honor to that member which lacked, so that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. So the same living in an understanding way that a husband is supposed to do with his wife 
who is weaker because she is a woman. So in the church, those members of the church who are less presentable are to be treated with greater honor. Why? That the members may have no divisions, that the members may have the same care for one another. And then James 2.5, Listen, my beloved brethren, did not God choose the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he promised to those who love him? And then, James 4.6, God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Now, it's not only that women are the weaker sex that the Holy Spirit uses to caution husbands, but it also says that we are to treat our wives with honor and kindness because they are fellow heirs of the grace of life. Show her honor as a fellow heir of the grace of life so that your prayers are not hindered. Now think about this. What do angels spend their time doing? Well, there are a number of things they do, but one thing I want to point out to you particularly, which is that it says in Hebrews, the first chapter, about angels, verse 14, are they not all ministering spirits sent out to render service for the sake of those who will inherit salvation? In other words, angels are sent by God to minister to both the weaker and the stronger vessel, to men and women. And if angels are called to serve men and women, how much more ought a husband to serve his wife? I mean, you can easily make the case that it's lacking in dignity for angels in all their perfection and glory to ever have anything to do with us. But both the man and the woman, both the husband and the wife, are only vessels Yeah, you can say she's weaker, but how weak am I? (laughs) I mean, think about that, guys. (laughs) I mean, you know, uh, men, you are pathetic. And the older you get, the more you see how pathetic you are, unless you're a fool. You are very weak. You are stupid. You are ignorant. You are dishonest. You are everything the Bible says. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked, who can know it? And so when you begin to compare the man and the woman and you act as if the man's perfect, all wise, you know, he's the one who ought to have leadership because he's competent for it, right? You can immediately begin to think that there's a a huge chasm between man and woman, but there isn't a huge chasm. It's just a, a very slight variation on the same theme, namely jars of clay. In other words, uh, if angels minister to both men and women, serving us as vessels, how much more ought the husband to serve his wife? Remembering that Galatians 3 is true. You are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. All of you who are baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There's neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither slave nor freeman. There's neither male nor female, for you are all one in Jesus Christ. 
Now, what does it mean for us to live in understanding? Well, obviously it means we have to understand them, but then it means things like we ought not to publicly speak of their failures. And this is one that I know has personally has grieved my wife. Um, She used to say, and I'm hoping she says it much less frequently now, but when we were younger, you know, completely ignorant, well, not ignorantly, just maliciously maybe. I mean, it wasn't malicious, but it was sinful, no question. You know, you'd have your small group over, and just incidentally in the story, you'd happen to mention something that your wife did that wasn't right or wasn't good or, or irritated you or something like that. And my wife, being very gentle and tactful in the way she'd confront me about this, would say to me, not, how could you hurt me like that? But she'd say, don't you realize that the other women in the group are are resenting you doing that to me? (laughs) Coming around behind me, you know. Don't you want to look better in the eyes of the other women, you know? Not, that hurt me, you know. And so one of the applications of this is that we ought not to publicize our wives' sins and their weaknesses. Now, obviously, all of you see that, right? But now let me ask you a question. Isn't it also true that we ought not to publicize them in our own minds? In other words, some of you would say, well, you know, I can't believe Tim would do that. I never, ever talk about it in public. But what about in your prayer life? And what about in your meditations? And what about when you're out fishing and hunting and traveling? Do you rehearse the things that irritate you about your wife? In other words, do you publicize them to your own mind and heart? Mary Lee, one of the many things that she does for me is tell me things I should read. And she told me recently I should read a little book called The Screwtape Letters by a man. I, I'm not, he was a, uh, a scholar. <laughs> C.S. Lewis. Um, And I want to read to you an excerpt from this as you think about why your prayers would be hindered, okay? Why would your prayers be hindered? Now, Lewis, I assume being single at the time he wrote this, was talked about his mother. But just change mother to wife because it works perfectly. Uh, It's a letter from Screwtape, one of the uh, higher-up authorities in hell, to uh, a personal demon named Wormwood who's working on this new Christian, all right? And so this, this demon demon is writing this demon about how he should work on this new Christian. And he says, My dear Wormwood, I'm very pleased by what you tell me about this man's relations with his mother, or I think with his wife, okay? But you must press your advantage. The enemy, and that always refers to God or to Jesus Christ, the enemy will be working from the center outwards, gradually bringing more and more of the patient's conduct under the new standard and may reach his behavior to the old lady at any moment. You want to get in first. Keep in close touch with our colleague, Glubos, who is in charge of the mother, and build up between you and that house a good settled habit of mutual annoyance. Daily pinpricks. The following methods are useful. Keep his mind on the inner life. (laughs) 
He thinks his conversion is something inside him, and his attention is therefore chiefly turned at present to the states of his own mind, or rather to that very expurgated version of them, which is all you should allow him to see. In other words, don't even let him see what he really is inside. Just make it a very superficial thing. All right, encourage this. Keep his mind off the most elementary duties by directing it to the most advanced and spiritual ones. Aggravate that most useful human characteristic, the horror and neglect of the obvious. You must bring him to a condition in which he can practice self-examination for an hour without discovering any of those facts about himself which are perfectly clear to anyone who has ever lived in the same house with him or worked in the same office. It is no doubt impossible to prevent his praying for his mother, but we have means of rendering the prayers innocuous. Make sure that they're always very spiritual. That he's always concerned with the state of her soul and never with her rheumatism. Two advantages will fall. In the first place, his attention will be kept on what he regards as her sins, by which, with a little guidance from you, he can be induced to mean any of her actions which are inconvenient or irritating to himself. And thus you can keep rubbing the wounds of the day a little sore even while he's on his knees. The operation is not at all difficult and you'll find it very entertaining. In the second place, since his ideas about her soul will be very crude and often erroneous because he doesn't understand her, all right, he will in some degree be praying for an imaginary person. And it will be your task to make that imaginary person daily less and less like the real mother, the sharp-tongued old lady at the breakfast table. In time, you may get the gap so wide that no one thought or feeling from his prayers for the imagined mother will ever flow over into his treatment of the real mother. I have had patients of my own so well in hand that they could be turned at a moment's notice from impassioned prayer for a wife's or a son's soul to beating or insulting the real wife or son without a qualm. When two humans have lived together for many years, it usually happens that each has tones of voice and expressions of face which are almost unendurably irritating to the other. Work on that. Bring fully into the consciousness of your patient that particular lift of his mother's eyebrows which he learned to dislike in the nursery. And let him think how much he dislikes it. Let him assume that she knows how annoying it is and she does it to annoy. If you know your job, he will not notice the immense improbability of the assumption. And of course, never let him suspect that he has tones and looks which similarly annoy her. As he cannot see or hear himself, this is easily managed. In civilized life, domestic hatred usually expresses itself by saying things which would appear quite harmless on paper. The words aren't offensive, but in such a voice or at such a moment that they are not far short of a blow in the face. To keep this game up, you and Glubos must see to it that each of these two fools has a sort of double standard. Your patient must demand that all his own utterances are to be taken at their face value and judged simply on the actual words. While at the same time, judging all his mother's utterances with the fullest and most oversensitive interpretation of the tone and the context and the suspected intention. She must be encouraged to do the same to him. Hence, from every quarrel, they can go away convinced or very nearly convinced that they are quite innocent. You know the kind of thing. I simply asked her what time dinner will be, and she flies into a temper. Once this habit is well established, you have the delightful situation of a human saying things with the express purpose of offending and yet having a grievance when offense is taken. 
Now, let me ask you a question. Is there any wonder why it would be that two people living together in such a way would not be able to pray? How can we go to God and have communion with God when the person that we're right next to, we despise? We don't like the way she lifts her eyebrows, the way she makes the bed, the food she sets on the table, the way she disciplines our children, and we don't understand any of the things that she does. My wife and I have a recurring uh, problem, and I'm beginning to see the solution to it as I preach, namely, uh, I say, honey... Uh, I have said, did it, did it, did it, but you didn't do it. What am I, is there something wrong here? And she will begin to try to explain why she did it that way, and I'll say, I don't want to hear the explanations. What am I saying? What I'm saying is, I don't want to live with you in an understanding way. What matters is what I want, sweetheart. Right? And so then I go to God with prayers. How do you think God's going to respond to me? Hmm? Will God hear my prayers? Or will my prayers be hindered? And you all know the answer to that. Well, let me ask whether you're willing to obey this text and whether you're willing to be able to come back next week with more knowledge of your wife than you have this week? Or is that demeaning of your time and attention? Wives are a tremendous gift from God. I look around at the women in this church. The wives that we have been blessed with are beautiful. And we as men can be fools and despise them and not live with them in an understanding way and not acknowledge that they're the weaker sex and not care about their children and not ask what they fear and the sins that tempt them. And God will not hear our prayers. Or we can live with our wives in an understanding way. And the Bible gives us the privilege of obeying and Don't feel bad if you have to be exhorted to do this. The Bible rarely exhorts us to do things that we don't have to be exhorted to do. You know, the Bible knows us. In other words, the Holy Spirit knows us. In other words, God made us. And so it's no surprise to him that we need to be told and that we need to be given by the Holy Spirit the repentance, the humility, and then the love to obey. So let's do it. Let's pray. Father, thank you for our wives, and I thank you for...